It is sweet to trust in Jesus, isn't it? I love how that song has the line, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, right? When has he failed you? I've proven myself many times to be a sinner. And Christ has always proven faithful. I praise God for his grace that, that I've learned to trust him and that, that you've learned to trust him. He's good to us. We'll see him soon, won't we? <laughs> if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 2. We are continuing our study in Colossians at a uh, snail's pace. But if you've read Paul before, you, you understand why. Um, uh, last week we worked through, so we're in chapter 2. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at 8, 9, and 10. But it's closely connected with 6 and 7. So uh, let's just read 6 through 10 tonight. Okay? Colossians 2, 6 through 10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements of the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's, let's pray to the Lord one more time together. Father, I'm just powerfully reminded tonight that I have received you purely because of grace. There's no wisdom in me. I'm not wise enough to choose you. You've been kind to us. And for that, we give you praise. You are a merciful, merciful Savior. But we also recognize that you are God. You are King over all things. And you deserve all praise and all glory, all submission, all fear, all respect, and all obedience. And even we as your people, we struggle So tonight, I pray for grace to trust you more. We trust you. We trust you. We have found that trusting you is good and it is sweet. And there's no way, no other way we want to live. But we want more grace to trust you more. So Father, do that tonight in your people. Let us see your love displayed by growing us. Display your beauty through words tonight. And let Christ be magnified in our midst. So you must accomplish all this, God. No man can do this. And so we'll entrust it to you and we'll look for your power. We ask this in the name of Christ, our precious Savior. Amen. 
When I was in Scouts, I attended Scout Camp, like many Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts do. I did it for years. I don't know how many times I, I went to, to Camp Raven Knob, but, but I had a blast going. It was, uh, I got to go to camp with my best friends for a week. I got to eat junk food and, and swim in mountain streams. We had this awesome swimming hole that was so cold. We'd, we'd bring all these watermelons from eastern North Carolina and we'd put them in the creek and just leave them there so that they were chilled when we would gorge on watermelon every night. And we, we enrolled, I'm just reflecting, this is, I'll, I'll get somewhere here in a minute. We, we, we would enroll in all these merit badge classes and we'd learn, uh, learn skills, some of which are more useful than others. I have not used my basket weaving skills in a while. Um, but, but it was, it, we had a blast. And, and, and for meals, the hundreds of campers, hundreds of Boy Scouts uh, would gather together in the big mess hall or whatever we call that thing and ate the worst food you can dream of. You can powder anything. It's amazing. You, you really can. And, and, and it was a lot of fun. But there was this long-standing tradition there at Camp Raven Knob. About halfway through the week, usually early, like a Tuesday, and it was always at lunch, as well as I remember, someone would, there were windows all around. It was an elevated building, and there were windows uh, on three sides of this big, this big building in a wraparound porch. And someone would run up to the windows and point and yell, bear, bear, bear. And so, of course, all the 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds would, would run to the window, and, and they would look, and we would, all, we would all look for the bear. Now, experienced campers, like myself, except for when I was not experienced, we, would, we knew exactly what we were supposed to do. We'd stand up, we'd say, oh, there it is, I see the bear, bear, right? The bear would never stay there long, ever. It would actually only be there for a few seconds before it mysteriously slipped back into the woods. And then we'd spend the rest of the lunch and even the rest of the day asking the new scouts, did you see the bear? Did you see how big it was? That's the biggest one I've, I've ever seen, right? It was huge. Well, it wasn't until my second year that I noticed the pattern. A bear would appear every Tuesday at about lunch, and it would be gone very quickly. And someone would always jump up and shout, bear, and it would disappear very quickly. But even still, everybody saw the bear. Of course, there was no bear, right? You're with me on this, right? Some of you, yeah, yeah. there was no bear. But once you figured that out, <laughs> I felt so bad for the guys. It took three years to figure it out, right? But once you figured out that there was no bear, you had so much fun asking all the younger scouts, you know, uh, you're, you're tempting them to lie in reflection as I think about this, right? Did you see the bear? Did you see how, how, and they, of course, they always saw the bear. You don't want to miss the bear. And they would always, I mean, that was the fun of the prank. It was not just claiming, it's not just trying to trick somebody that they saw a bear that there wasn't there. It was getting people to admit that they saw it when, of course, you know, they didn't see it. I, I knew even as a pretentious 13-year-old, there were, there, there were dads who claimed to have seen the bear, right? Uh, and it was pitiful. I share this story because it illustrates how easy it is to be deceived, especially when people around you are pressuring you. 
it's easy. The sudden pressure of your peers, of having an exciting experience that is interesting and, and, and communal, it's, it's very powerful. I was amused by the adults, especially who would fall for this, right? Men who presumably were otherwise reasonably intelligent men who I assume had careers and jobs and, you know, I assume had some self-esteem were tricked by a bunch of us 12 and and 13-year-olds. Now, we may not want to admit it, but we are much more susceptible to being deceived than we think, That's how deceit works, right? You don't know that you're being tricked. This is especially true when lots of people around us are being duped. This is true even in our faith, even for people who have strong faith, I believe. That's what Paul is addressing in our text this evening. He's addressing the danger of being led astray by ideas that sound slick. That sound really good. I have a young ministry, but I've seen this a number of times, even in my ministry. Men and women, and particularly young adults, or or perhaps uh, past middle age, or college students who will grow up in the faith, or spend years in church, and they'll go off to college, or they'll have a midlife crisis, or suddenly they'll be empty, empty nesters, and suddenly they'll decide, I don't think I need to go to church anymore. I, I don't need to go to church anymore to have a relationship with God. One middle-aged man said, I've spent my whole life living for God, for my family, and for my kids. Now, I want to live for myself. I want to do what I want to do. Now, it may be less dramatic. We see it all the time, and I don't mean to step on any particular toes here. I try to step on toes equally, right? Families who are committed to the church until baseball season rolls around. Or your team is playing, right? And suddenly the softball schedule calls for four nights a week at the baseball field. Or games are scheduled on Sundays and suddenly you're exhausted and you start skipping church, right? You get tricked, perhaps, into thinking that your kid's athletic prowess is perhaps more important than hearing God's word. We're all susceptible to being duped in big ways and in small ways. And in our text tonight, that is the warning that Paul is giving us. That's our main idea this evening. Don't be drawn away by slick-sounding ideas that you can be happy in anyone or anything other than Christ. Don't be tricked. Watch out, is what he says. Well, let's take a look at this text together. But we have to review, right? That's why I read verses 6 and 7. We've got to put this in context. It's important to keep in mind what just happened in 6 and 7. Remember, Paul didn't, I don't think Paul intended for his letters to be uh, read for, for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? They were read in a sitting. And I think it's great that we preach them for weeks obviously. But we've got to remember, he's writing a, a whole letter that's read in about 15 minutes. But in 6 and 7, Paul is urging believers to continue walking. To continue walking with Christ. That just, Christian, just as you have received Christ, keep walking in Christ. 
Now remember, this idea of walking, which is so common in the Bible, is really the idea of living. And the idea in the Bible, the idea of walking with God, we didn't trace this out last week, we could have. Uh, the idea of walking with God, we see a pattern. It's, it's a picture of, of extreme intimacy with God. Can you think of people who walked with God? Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. Enoch walked with God. In fact, Enoch was so in, right, that he, God just took him. Just took him. Abraham walked with God. Isaac, the Bible says, walked with God. It's a picture of deep intimacy. And you can't help but picture the disciples walking over the hills of Galilee with Christ, learning and seeing how Jesus treated people, hearing the words that he said, watching bread appear where there was no bread. It's a picture of extreme intimacy with God. This reminds us that we were made, just as we saw Adam and Eve, we were made, we were built. You, friend, were built to enjoy a level of intimacy with God that none of us has even dared to dream about. The whole point of marriage is to give us a context to show real big-time intimacy to point us to God. That's one of the points. In, uh, intimacy that, b- beyond any intimacy that a husband and wife could ever share, we, you, were made to know God, to walk with God. And now this context is important for us to keep in mind because this strange warning that Paul is giving us, that's the central uh, theme of this passage uh, that he's addressing in these next several verses is connected with this. He's going to continue this idea. Don't stop walking. Don't be drawn away from intimacy with Christ. It's so helpful that we just sang, oh, for grace to trust him more. It's tempting, I think, to hear a passage like this and think, oh, I'm not drawn away from Christ. Oh, I'm walking with Christ. We need to think also in terms of degrees. I want to walk with him more. I want to trust him more. No, I don't want to be drawn away, but I don't want to be drawn away even an inch. Because where else can I find happiness? Who else can satisfy like God? So think on both of those spectrums. Paul is intensely concerned with anything that will pull the Colossian Christians away from intimacy with God. Are you concerned with those things in your life? If you were to jot down on a post-it note three of the top things that are tempting you to be drawn away from Christ, it doesn't have to be the big bad sins. It could be respectable things. What, what tempts you from being drawn away from intimacy with Christ? In this case, Paul is dealing with the dangers of philosophy. Now, I'm pretty sure that if I did ask you, if we did do the experiment, the post-it note experiment, I'm pretty sure that the only person here that might put philosophy on his post-it note, I don't know who would do that. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know anybody who would do that. I don't know how to spell philosophy, right? But you'll notice here in verse 8 that the warning that we are given here is to resist a certain type of philosophy. Now, you might be thinking, done, right? <laughs> Got it, right? Whatever. Let's go home. I've, I've resisted philosophy ever since I ever, right? 
Perhaps you took in college, you know, and you don't have a, you didn't, maybe you took it in college, maybe you didn't. It, it doesn't really matter because we need to understand what Paul meant by philosophy. The first thing to understand is that Paul was not being critical of philosophy as a field of study. Do we hear the sigh over here from the second row, right? <laughs> yeah, good, right? Paul's not being critical of philosophy as a discipline of higher critical thinking. One of the, like our use of the word philosophy is much more narrow and much more specialized than it was in Paul's day. And for, in, in that time, philosophy would simply refer to a love of wisdom or wisdom. It, it could be applied to virtually any system, any coherent system of thought. It usually or often referred to a system of religious ideas or theories about God or theories about life. It could be Jewish. It could be pagan. It could be Greek. It could be backcountry. This, this isn't just smart people. In a sense, we all have a philosophy. Now, as we've said in the past, we can only speculate exactly what particular philosophical ideas Paul was addressing in Colossae. We think it was probably a mixture of Judaism and paganism mixed in with some Christian, a lot of Christianity and a little bit of Judaism and, and paganism. Um, but based on Paul's response, it seemed to have something to do with their experience of Christ. And the temptation to think that you need something in addition to Christ to experience a full Christian life. Something else, right? You gotta, you gotta have Christ to know God. They weren't denying Christ Himself, but something plus Jesus. Now, we're not gonna go into the technical details of what a lot of folks think was going on there, but I think we can go ahead and recognize that, that while the specifics of the Colossian heresy are not relevant to us today, we are certainly prone to being captivated by false philosophies. The types of philosophies that Paul is concerned with, would, those are any ways of explaining the world where God is not the center. How about that for a definition? Any way of explaining the world where God is not the center. You see those bumper stickers that says, soccer is life, the rest is just details? Do they have those anymore? Some of you might have one on your car. Take it off, right? Soccer, soccer isn't life. God is life. Soccer is a detail. That's the cranky pastor in me. Right? That's a philosophy of life. It's a philosophy of life. Soccer is the most important thing, right? Every human being is trying to make sense of his or her life. doesn't matter how old you are. And they're, make, they're trying to make sense of his or her life. And they have to make decisions about what is truth. What makes me happy? What is good? What is, what is beautiful? Each of us has a way that we view our world. We have a worldview. We make decisions on who God is and how much of our attention he deserves and how he acts and what we think of him. How relevant he is to our lives. We make decisions about what is good and beautiful. One way to think about this is how we spend our money. 
We buy things that are good and beautiful. The types of media we consume are things that we think are good and beautiful. And our personal philosophies or our philosophy of life is guiding how we are answering these types of questions. What is the good life? How can I be happy? Who or what gets my attention and my love? Those aren't questions for just stuffy, smart people in, in ivory towers. That's question, those are questions that we all have answered and are answering. We all make judgments about what is beautiful. These are questions that our children are even beginning to answer. I think probably before they can even talk, they decide what is beautiful. They decide what they need to be happy. They decide how they should spend their time. My children have very strong opinions about what makes them happy. Even my one-year-old. We all do. Do you see how these are religious questions? This is the stuff of the Bible. All of these ideas. And so above all, we could say Paul is concerned with any idea or system of thought that would potentially interfere with the Colossians' experience of intimacy with God. Now that is relevant to our lives, isn't it? Perhaps one of the greatest captivating philosophies in our culture is materialism. That, we, that the stuff we buy and our ability to purchase or maintain is what makes us happy. That you are defined by what you own, how much you make, and how much you are worth. That could be one. Or perhaps it's individualism. The idea that I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own ship. I'm going to follow my dreams. I'm going to do what makes me happy. And no parent, no teacher, no pastor, no government official, no policeman, no authority can tell me otherwise. I'm going to do what feels good. This person would say, you probably know some, that my personal happiness is the single most important thing in the world. And everything I do will be centered around me. Do you think anybody in our culture has bought into that philosophy? In this text, Paul gives us four reasons why we should resist such philosophies. It's actually helpful to us, so it's not incredibly detailed what the Colossian heresy was, because then we can apply it more broadly and more specifically to our context. But let's look quickly at these four warnings of these dangers. The first is Paul says they are deceptive. Verse 8. He says, uh, the ESV translates this, um, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Right, some translations, they say this, it's this, em, this emptiness, this nothingness, right? It's, it's any, any teaching, any idea, any system of thought that suggests that you can find fullness in anything other than God. Guess what Paul says? It's empty. It's a lie. It is empty deceit. Whether you're deceived by something that is as stupid as astrology, I don't get that. I, I, don't, I was reading statistics on this. Or Ouija boards, right? We've talked about that in the past. Or perhaps it's something more sophisticated, like cultural constructivism. Or skepticism, or something more subtle, just like good old-fashioned American materialism. Whatever it is, 
If it doesn't place God at the center of the universe and you in submission to him and him at the center of your life, it's a lie. It's empty. If it doesn't place Christ, the redeeming Savior, as the Lord of all things, it's a lie. And you're being tricked. It doesn't matter if everyone else around you is buying into it. It doesn't matter what the, what the universities say. It doesn't matter what a politician says. It doesn't matter. Hey, there is no bear. It's a lie. It's empty. The promises that whatever your ism, right? Whatever your ism, materialism, individualism, whatever it is, right? Uh, living for retirementism. Is that a thing? Let's make it a thing, Right? Whatever your ism is, is lying to you. And we need to learn to recognize and see these lies as such. Many of us, I mean, to function in American culture, you have to grow in your ability to spot frauds, right? We, we identify schemes. If you have email, you're probably very familiar with this. I hope so, right? For example, I recently received an email inviting me only me, to be a mystery shopper. Did you know that I can make 200 to $300 a day by shopping? See, what they didn't know is I hate shopping. So, ha-ha, right? But, but all I have to do is I have to purchase some training materials, all right, send them my credit card number, they'll send me some training materials, and then I can make a living buying stuff. Doesn't that, right, doesn't that sound great? Do you think those training materials are going to come? Some of you are like, man, I'm waiting on my training materials. I've been waiting for two years. What about I received a mailer from the local car dealership recently with a car key glued to it. Have you gotten one of those? I'm like, what are you trying to do? Like, I want you to explain to me exactly what you're trying to get me to do with this car key. Anyone try to put it in a car? No? We need to become as skilled as at spotting spiritual lies as we are at these silly marketing schemes. Our temptations, our isms make big promises to us. You will be happy if. It's all I. All of it. Even if you don't buy into materialism big picture, we all struggle with it in the little picture, don't we? It's a lie. Those idols cannot deliver, Paul says. A second description we see here is Paul says that, that these are according to human tradition. They're traditional, right? You see that there in verse 8. Now, it seems like for most of human history, humans have loved tradition. I wonder if we're the first society to only like the new and try to be getting rid of the old. But once again, I won't we don't do this in sports, right? No one shows up and is like, I want to stop singing Rocky Top. <laughs> you know, it's, anyways, I'm sorry. I'm not picking, yeah. But we, we love tradition, right? It's whether it's the way that we do things at our church or the way we do our family traditions or the rituals that are surrounding your football team, right? Tradition is a powerful force to be reckoned with. I mean, I'll tell you what, you come into my home and you try to mess with our Christmas traditions, mm -mm. 
You don't take Brussels sprouts away from us on Christmas. I'm serious. It's a multi-generate. We eat Brussels sprouts. Y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. You've never had my wife and my mom's Brussels sprouts. They're perfect. All right. We'll take the torch. Yeah, you don't. You definitely don't touch with the torch. Right there, there's. If you try to mess with tradition, watch out. Right, but there's a great power in doing things the way that they've been done because that's how they've been done. Right, it's it's the way that our forefathers have done it. Materialism is incredibly and absurdly powerful in our culture because it's everywhere. It's what everybody is doing. I mean, it's like to be an American, and it's believed by most everybody. Just because we've always believed that and just because we've always bought that, just because everyone else believes that and just because everyone else buys it, it doesn't make it true and it doesn't make it good or beautiful. Satan's most clever lies are the ones he has disguised the best, right? A third thing that Paul says is that these philosophies, hopefully you are tracking with the philosophy language now, they're demonic. Verse 8 says, This dangerous philosophy is according to the elemental spirits of the world. I'm with most smart people who think that this is referring to the demonic spirits that were thought to control much of the, the world, especially the realm between what happens on earth and and heaven. You don't need to worry about it too much. But think about think in Ephesians when Paul talks about principalities and, and powers. It's demonic. For us, the main point is, is that any idea that lures you away from Christ is demonic. It's satanic. It could be moralism. It could be self-righteousness. The idea that I'm accepted because I behave or I come on Wednesday night. But we have to see that anything that pulls us away from Christ, which self-righteousness does, right? If you're, so, if you're righteous by yourself, why do you need Jesus? Any, anything that is pulling us away from Christ is the work of Satan, it is demonic. It is demonic activity. I think one of the best ways that we can see this, an example in the scriptures, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is warning the Christians there at Corinth about, about idols. And perhaps you'll remember, he basically says, hey, look, these idols aren't really, they're not really gods. They're just blocks of wood and blocks of stone, right? For us, it'd be silicon that goes into computer chips, right? It's, they're not really, they're not, they're so, he's, I think he says they're so-called gods. They're not even a thing. But when you sacrifice to them, if you sacrifice to them, what's happening is you're actually offering to demons. You take, you take a, a mute block of wood, but then when you begin to engage in worship, it becomes a demonic activity, he says that you're participating with demons. What does that mean? It means that anything that draws us away from worshiping the one true God, anything that is pulling your attention away from seeing Christ as more beautiful than all the other beautiful things in your life, that thing is demonic or is being hijacked by demons. Manipulate Those ideas, those things, experiences are being manipulated by demons to draw you away from worshiping the one true God. 
A final thing Paul says about this philosophy is that it enslaves. Back at the beginning of verse 8, he reminds us that these ideas, these, these philosophies are enslaving. See to it that no one takes you what? Captive. These ideas are like the Venus flytrap. The only meat-eating plant that I'm aware of. If I was a plant, I know what I'd want to be, right? The only meat-eating plant, right? It, 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 it lures insects in with sights and smells, and then when they're inside of the leaves or whatever, right, they, they close the leaves before it digests them. I don't want to tell you how long I spent reading about Venus flytraps on Wikipedia. They have a digestive system. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Friends, the very nature of sin is that it enslaves. It snares us. Sin never wants to just come out, come over, hang out and play, and then go home. It always wants to set up shop. It always wants total destruction. Sin always wants and requires a lifelong commitment. It always asks for more. The Greek word that Paul uses here that's speaking of this danger of being captivated. It's, it's a word that describes, it's the danger of being carried away like plunder. Like someone, like an enemy coming and snatching you, an alien captor, snatching you and taking you away. That's what these ideas do. Ideas matter. What you think Matters What you read, what you hear, what you look at, what goes through your mind matters. That's what these false ideas can do. They're like the most terrifying words that you can imagine. Negleria floweri. If I could say it, it'd be scarier. Negeria floweri, which are also known as brain-eating amoebas. These ideas get into our mind and they rot out our minds and our love for Christ. Think of these hollow philosophies, these deceitful philosophies as eating your mind away. Flee from them. Watch out. Paul uses a fun Greek word, a word I remember from school, to, to give us this warning. It's blepete. Watch out, right? Be on guard. Be on guard against these ideas. And then, of course, he tells us how to combat them. If I told you, if I invited you over to my house and then you came, and then I somehow described to you, let me, no. If, if, okay, take my house out of it. If I invited you into my garden, which we don't have, and then I said, hey, you know, I'm glad you're here. Just be careful. There's some brain-eating amoebas here. All you have to do is, would you listen to me, Right? Oh, you'd run. But, okay, but if you're stuck, I mean, you would, you would listen. I bet I would have your attention. Paul is telling us how to be on guard against demonic brain rot. His solution, a solution he gives the Colossians, is what? You remember the theme of Colossians? His solution is to see Christ. And to enjoy the fullness of Christ. That's the solution here. Watch out for these ideas and instead enjoy the fullness of Christ. 
At the end of verse 8, Paul is capping off his description of these brain-rotting philosophies by saying that they're not according to Christ. He then goes on to tell us something of this Christ in verses 9 and 10. That in the body of Jesus, the entirety of God dwells. That Christ is God complete. Christ is God in whole and in full, undivided. We often simplify it, as we do for my children's catechism, by saying Christ is fully God. That is a wonderfully true statement to learn and to believe. Christ is fully God. That's what the text says. Look look carefully at these these words. It says, in him the, how much fullness? The whole fullness. I would think that you wouldn't even need, if you have fullness, you don't need whole fullness. But Paul says, it is all, it is the fullness of God. The fullness of, of deity dwells bodily. Doesn't matter if you can't get your head entirely around this. It is still true. It is a glorious truth that that in Christ, the full deity of God dwells. And this should blow our minds. More on that in a moment. But the text goes on. Look down at verse 10. It says, so it makes this statement about Christ, but then it goes on to say, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So it's setting Christ over all things, but then it says, you've been filled in him. What does that mean? Not only is Christ fully God, but you, Christian, have been filled in him. Which I take to mean that not only do we have access to God, But we have access to the fullness of God. God is all sufficient. He lacks nothing. He is the fountain of all things that are good. He is the source of happiness. There's no true happiness that God did not create and he does not possess. You can't find it anywhere else. Same thing with joy. Same thing with peace. He is the fountain of comfort, of fellowship, of righteousness. And you have total access to all these things in him. They are him. God is all sufficient. You and I, we are not the fullness of God like Christ. And unlike Christ, we cannot hold all the fullness of God. But here's the thing. We can be full of the fullness of God. That's what it says. Now, I know this makes your head hurt because it makes my head hurt even as I'm trying to say it. And I've been thinking about it for a while. So let's see if an illustration would help. Imagine that you were on the shore of California and you were walking along the Pacific Ocean. And you stopped and you paused and you looked out across the largest ocean in the world. And you're standing there and you're looking out over the vastness and you realize this is big, right? You can't even see all the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Like, where can you stand to see all the Pacific Ocean? you got to get in a spaceship, right? And you got to go up really high. And then, if you were, like, in the right spot, you could maybe see, I don't really know, but you could maybe see all the Pacific Ocean. Or you could see the top of the Pacific Ocean. You couldn't see anything that's under it. You couldn't see anything that's under clouds, right? Where do you go to see the fullness of what the Pacific Ocean is and what it contains? 
So think about what it would be like to take a mason, a mason jar and to put it into the water and to let a wave fill up that jar. Your jar would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. But you could never put the fullness of the Pacific into your jar. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ is fully God. Only Christ can contain the fullness of God. But you and I can be filled up with that same fullness. Let's see if we can make that a little more practical. If your jar is full of Christ, there will not be room for anything else. If your jar is totally full of Christ, what other... What, what else would you put in? What else, you don't need anything. You're not empty. You're full. Perhaps we could extend the illustration, right? There, if, if the jar is totally full of Christ, there's no need and there's no room left for other false substitutes. Perhaps you could just throw the jar in the water. Immerse your lives in the beauties of Christ and in who He is as Lord and who He is as God and who He is as Savior. To saturate your thoughts and your life with His glory and with His beauty. And you know what will happen as you do that? You will find your heart full. And you will find fullness of joy and fullness of peace because you are dwelling like the, like, the, like the vine, like the branch in the vine. You are dwelling in him. You are abiding in him. You won't need other gods. They won't have any other sway. It's like going to a buffet and eating far more than you can eat, right? When you walk in, you're hungry, you're looking at that food, that food looks good. When you fill up and you're walking out, that food doesn't look good anymore, right? You're not hungry. You don't need anything. You're full. That's what we must do in Christ. Look out. Be on guard against any other ideas that would fill you up. Keep you from beholding this beauty. Practically speaking, how could you do that? How could you do this tonight? Well, I think for us as sinners... The most natural place for us to begin is by considering the cross of Christ. There we see God's sacrificial love for you and I, sinners. Every day, every single day, we could return there again and again with fresh instances of our sin. I've sinned in new ways since yesterday. So now I come seemingly more aware of my sin than I was Yesterday, we come with new struggles, new failures, and we see anew. How can it be Christ died for me? And what happens when you do that? You'll find your heart filling up with joy. And you won't need all the false, empty philosophies. And as the song says, the things of the world will grow strangely dim when you turn your eyes on Jesus conclude with a sentence that John Owen, John Owen wrote a big book about the glory of Christ. He said this, on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see the glory of Christ, the more paint, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I will be more and more crucified to the world. It will become to me like something dead 
and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. Let's do that together. Let me close this in prayer. Father, help us to see you as you are, full of beauty and glory, fully God and fully man, and yet you love us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Fill us as we go. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.